0: Welcome to The Han Jan Ran Show, the audacious podcast by Hannah Rankin. I'm going to keep the intro short and sweet this week as I think it's more beneficial to jump straight into this beautiful conversation with my insightful guest, Amber Sisson. Amber explained period poverty to me what went into her co-founding a charity and drove her to research gender equality further. We also discussed the intersection of spirituality and activism as it presents in Amber's life. This is an exquisite and honest depiction of many facets of a quite extraordinary woman. Before I hand it over to Amber though, I want to ask you three little favours. One, subscribe, rate and review. It helps others to find the podcast. Two, follow me at hanjamran to give me a virtual high five and to support the show. And three, send it to a friend. I've had lots of messages from people passing it on to their crew. And to you, I want to say a huge thank you. Now, on to the show. Amber, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm really excited to be here
0: it's gonna be a good one I can feel it so I just wanted to (laughs) I just wanted to check in with you before we hit the heavy stuff and see how you're feeling at the moment because I know it's been a pretty draining time both with the pandemic but also for you on the front line as an activist dealing I guess with the emotional impact of fighting for racial equality
1: oh thank you thanks for you know the, the the thought to check in um yeah, I mean, all I can say is that it's just really exhausting. You know, it's, it's, um, I never thought that, you know, at the start of this year we would be going into some extreme health crisis and, mm. you know, being locked up in our house, um, for however long it's been now, 16 weeks, 17 weeks. Um, but on top of that, I also never thought that we would go into, a race riot of this magnitude you know mm. um and it's kind of this weird conflicting feeling of like you know oh my god like i have to keep going i have to keep doing this and and i have to keep showing up and being that person being that activist but then at the same time there's so much happening that it's so exhausting so trying to find that space between being and driving yourself to keep being that activist and then just saying, I need to stop and have a rest. Um, yeah. So I've been doing, I've, I've been trialling a few methods actually of how I might manage the the sort of burnout that comes with these things because, you know, like it wasn't so long ago that going to the grocery store was an anxiety-inducing activity due to yeah. COVID, you yeah. know, and even trying to show up to a protest in amongst COVID, it's like mm. the dissonance between, like, I know I have to be here
0: versus, like, what if I catch COVID? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's crazy. But it's yeah, it's super poignant because actually, black and brown people are suffering with COVID at a disproportionately higher rate. So these racial um protests, the black and brown community are actually making a bigger sacrifice by being there. They're taking a bigger risk. So yeah, it's just, it, 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 you're right. It's been a very um, surprising year and a challenging one. Um, and also like a huge time of reflection on both both accounts. And I just wanted to say that I'm super grateful that you've been willing to come and join me here given the expectation or the demands that you've been, um, had had put on you this year so far. So I just wanted to give a little background in that we connected um, really over our common uh, agenda, our love of pushing for positive change, pushing those boundaries um, back in Sydney. And we both ended up here in London. And I just, yeah, you've been a huge source of inspiration for me in that. Well, when we met, I was kind of doing some fundraisers and stuff for charities that um I felt quite invested in supporting but little did I know that you actually had co-founded your own charity um addressing period poverty in Australia I can't even like so much went into doing a fundraiser so much effort and uh learning and attention required I can't even imagine what goes into starting an actual charity so (laughs) Would you mind telling us a bit about the rough period the charity you co founded and how how that came about?
1: Sure, of course. And you know what, just to sort of echo what you said, it was, you know, us meeting was just so perfectly timed. And, Mm. you know, I felt like we throughout our Sydney journey just learned so much from each other and like Mm. powered each other on to like do bigger and better things Um, And it's not every day that you find a person or a friend like that, you know, it's, um, it was really just such an amazing alignment. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you about the rough period. So um, some years ago in 2016, two friends of mine uh, came together in the sort of last months of December, or actually in December 2015, um, and decided, you know, they had read some articles about women experiencing period poverty. So they kind of did a bit of reaching out to their friends and gathered some sanitary items and put them in handbags and sort of took them around to uh, women on the streets in Sydney just as like a Christmas kind of gift. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, coincidentally, you know, I heard of that through the grapevine in Sydney because, you know, Sydney's, you know, c- small. Can be small circles, <laughs> small circles. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be able to come on board with that because I kind of, I had just finished a business degree um, and my kind of goal was to take a bit of a break and then sort of try and nestle myself in the world of HR Um, Mm. (laughs) so fully commercial Um, and but I ended up sort of jumping on board uh, with the rough period because I kind of realized that after doing some of the drops that I had skills that could actually take this idea this grassroots sort of initiative to be able to move it into something real and so when we all agreed and we all decided okay let's do this that was when you know I started putting in the work which you know I did a lot of the behind the scenes stuff while um, Noni and Jasmine did a lot of the frontline stuff um, and you know, what was started as three girls driving around in a blue Toyota Yaris on the streets of Sydney um, yes. at random moments of the night, <laughs> giving out um, sanitary packs. You know, we became an incorporated association in um, 2017 um, and got our charity status shortly after that. Um Now we have a full committee um, of people and there is a few more people that are there with us on the front line. Um, A small disclaimer, at the moment we are on hiatus just because of the current climate. Um, Mm -hmm. We sort of faced 2019, 2020 was quite a difficult time for the business in that sense that like it came, we had Australian bushfires followed by COVID followed by you know race riots and all of this um I'm not going to use the word riot. I've got to stop using that word I'm going to say you know yeah it's an interesting choice it just I go it's because I kind of travel back to this 1960s kind of time do you know what I mean like yeah, I, sure. that's what I kind of it's what I sort of bring into my mind when I'm thinking about all that's
0: happening for, you know, Black Lives Matter and... such huge parallels like I actually, I mean obviously I wasn't alive in the 60s but reading about it I'm like deja friggin view. Exactly. It's so frustrating that how many, 60 years later it's the same situation of protests being turned into riots and then being belittled in the media to, to only be about looting and it's like people are frustrated there are also opportunists taking Mm. advantage but you know people are hurting and they're acting out like let's look at the root cause not the uh, isolated instances anyway I've gone completely tangential but yeah I feel really (laughs) passionate about that
1: yeah and like you know if you're looking at there's a lot of power in words right so Mm -hmm. I think you know the way that I'm probably thinking about a word might translate very differently to someone else so sometimes I kind of think about it in this idea of like a revolution you know and I kind of think about those like synonymously in a way like you know that's just my the way that my brain is working but you know we are in what I would love to call a revolution I think this is like where I want to go with it um so yeah but um traveling back to the rough period um you know we we've been able I mean we've been fortunate enough to help countless women um, with what we do and you know at the time that we were sort of out driving around these streets in in Sydney visiting homeless camps and like seeking out women we would literally walk into these homeless camps you know they sort of used to be situated in Martin Place and Balmore Park and we would be like, where are the women, (laughs) you know, like and we were on this crusade to try and find the women. And I honestly remember one of the most shocking parts was when they cleared away the homeless camps in Sydney, especially the safe space in Martin Place, um, Mm -hmm. which was run for homeless people by homeless people um, and was a 24-hour safe space where people could go and take refuge and there was always food and there was, you know... It was just, it was a community, you know, and then it got cleared away by the government. Um, Shock. And then after that, we couldn't find the women that we were, you know, because we sort of relied on that space to have a lot of women there. And after they cleared it away, we just, we had no idea where they went after that. And the work became quite difficult. Mm. Um, And that's actually, you know, that was a really sad thing because it's, it also happened again in Balmore Park and, and, you know, there was paid security <laughs> to keep people from setting up communities in these parks. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was sort of a bit distressing in that way because we were like, well, all these women who we've come to sort of be familiar with and they know that we're coming, it's, you know, where are they now? We don't know. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And that's sort of the reality of what happens a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but I guess for the last part we have been on hiatus and we're just waiting for the sort of current climate to settle um, before we sort of look to what the next steps are.
0: Yeah I actually remember when I came after I must have been the year after we met um, I came back here for Christmas and instead of buying my niece and nephew's more toys <laughs> they don't need um I used that money that I normally would spend on them and I bought I did I did my own basically rough period inspired completely by you and just went into town one day and it was it was a really interesting experience actually just reflecting on I completely forgot that that happened but just thinking of how you your efforts had like a ripple effect and it went bigger than just what you were doing and then I ended up um getting the company I worked for in Australia to do little charity drives we did two before I left where I got it's a it's like a 95% female agency that I worked for and um got everyone to bring in sanitary items well nearly everyone it was it was a it was a hustle and (laughs) it also ended up that people just gave me cash and I had to go and like I didn't have a car in Sydney so I was like (laughs) went shopping for them and then carried it all to whichever inner west suburb the drop-off point was um but yeah, it was it was amazing. And I'm like, so grateful to you that you kind of made me more cognizant of those issues. Like, I don't think I thought of the, the... Like, obviously the struggles of being homeless are quite apparent visually. There's like visual prompts, but you don't think about those parts. Like what it must... How degrading it must be for a woman not to have the necessary sanitary items. And then even on a bigger um, scale for for non-homeless people like having the taxation on on period products Mm -hmm. uh just it it negatively affects people from low socioeconomic environments and I feel like our capitalist society is just constantly putting that those groups on a back burner and yeah it's complex isn't it
1: yeah totally and like I think we also have to acknowledge that it isn't just homeless women that suffer Mm. from period poverty you know I was just recently doing some studies where you know uh, 25% of Wahine in Aotearoa so uh, women in New Zealand um, have suffered period poverty at least once in their lifetime you know Mm. Um, so that's a quarter of the population of people you know that are experiencing this type of thing and you know period poverty isn't just like never having sanitary items it kind of is again linked to that idea of not having the correct sanitation um you know and it can it doesn't have to be over a sustained period of time it's like if it has happened once or twice to you it's like you have felt what that feels like you know um it's the same way if you were to go several meals without you know having not having meals for a couple of days you know you wouldn't just sort of brush that off it's like it's like oh actually i know what it feels like to have experienced starvation in a sense you know mm-hmm. um so it's like looking at that in the same way and you know when i think about low income families like i you know i honest i often think about how hard it must have been for my mother who was a single mother to have all three of us menstruating at the same time Mm. you know when you're paying 16 20 20 dollars I'm using New Zealand dollars um, for sanitary items you know Um, I've thought about moments when I was traveling Europe some years ago when I you know, when you walk past or go into the bathrooms and it says like one tampon, one euro, and it's like, oh my God, like even if I was homeless, that one euro would be so much more beneficial for me to buy food or, you know, what have you going towards shelter than it would be to get one singular tampon, you know, and Part of the reason why, you know, the rough period became such a pivotal part of my life, I feel like it's so ingrained in the fabric of my being now, is, you know, when I was doing market research, just to kind of look at what scale we are looking at for period poverty in Australia, I came across this article where it talked about um, Indigenous communities and rural communities in New South Wales and Queensland, you know, women were missing weeks of work and children missing school because they don't have the sanitary items. And further, the study sort of identified that these communities were also not meeting UN standards for water and sanitation. So you're also dealing with, again, price elasticity of demand, which is like, because there is no regulation in that industry around how much a person can charge for sanitary items people can charge extortionate prices and if you cannot afford those prices well what can you do (laughs) you just have to go without Um, and that's what was happening in these communities and because of these makeshift items that they were using it had further impacts on the community as a whole because of the poor plumbing and irrigation and all of that and some of the schools didn't even have sanitary disposal units so you know This is a systemic problem, you know, and the reason why, you know, I feel so passionately about it is because I feel like it's still a very untapped um, area for a lot of Mm -hmm. people and a lot of development agencies as well. Um, So that was a little bit of backstory um, on, like, the wider. And, yeah, again, it's like it doesn't just affect people who are living rough.
0: It can Mm -hmm. affect anyone yeah it's yeah it's a much more widespread issue than perhaps any of us realize so did your investment in uh period poverty did that sort of spark your interest in gender equality or was it the other way around or at the same time how did how did that go
1: so to be perfectly honest um my the first kind of introduction I'm not introduction it was like the first time that I really started feeling passionately about gender equality was when I was studying my undergraduate degree and um, I was I took a paper on leadership and I started reading a lot about the gender disparity within leadership and that's actually kind of what made me be like well why can't I be at the top in business, Mm. you know, and I started noticing this inequality of, you know, and this is just in one sector. And I was like, well, actually, that's really annoying. Mm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I remember writing this essay and it was kind of along the lines of, you know, with gender and leadership, it's like we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And it's such this paradox where it's like women who present themselves to be more masculine to try and get men to listen. <laughs> yeah. um, are seen as this, like, oh, you're a bitch. Oh, she's such a bitch. She's so hard, you know. Mm. Um, but women who display those soft skills of empathy and compassion and understanding are like, oh, no, she's too weak. She can't lead. And I was just like what <laughs> you know yeah. I was like this isn't fair like, like they,
0: these are my options like yeah and or, or bitchy
1: yeah and it's like well why can't I be both and yeah. why you know why do I have to be the one that's constantly changing myself to fit into an environment you know um, when it should just be a given and this started You know, me on this idea of like looking at other countries, looking at places like Iceland and Denmark and Sweden and Norway um, and looking at how they approach these things with like adding in laws and things, you know, like that to try and create at a systemic level the change that we need to see. Um, Mm. You know, but then when we think about wider business as a whole, so many of these major multinational corporations are centred in the States um, or the UK, and that's where you still see that very light neoliberal capitalist drive um, and power, you know, it's the power, it's power struggles, you know, everything in my most things in my opinion it comes back to power Um, and that's kind of you know women rising is a threat to power in a sense Mm -hmm. and um, it doesn't have to be that way it's like we just need to it's like how how why can't we just look at doing things a little bit differently or a lot differently.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah well it feels feels very far away from where we are now but essentially it's like we all just want to share the stage we're not saying you have to get off the stage it's like just let us let us join you and that comes down to gender sexuality race religious beliefs like there's space for everyone to succeed it doesn't have to be an either or no one's gonna like pull your the throne from underneath the the white man you know you'll still have it guys yeah (laughs) you're still
1: gonna be there it's okay no but I was um very recently um reading an article about um the nature of business and leaders and this is especially for um sort of more like Just development agencies and things like that, but um, there is a very strong call now to start bringing in these soft skills for business. So it's like whether or not they're whether or not that the men are going to like it or not, people are starting to realize that this soft skills, you know, this idea of compassion and empathy and and leading with sort of, I want to use the word like feminine, but in the sense of it being like more like a divine feminine type of thing mm. like because i don't believe in like those kind of traits you know um like cast solely to men and women but um you know there is there's
0: a huge difference between feminine and masculine and female and male like po- everyone yeah. has both qualities so yeah so, totally 100 so percent. <laughs>
1: and as a woman i actually think i possess more masculine qualities you know mm. despite looking very womanly and um, so there's a huge call now. They're understanding that we need to start bringing these things into business to get the most out of an organization, you know, to get the most out of what it is that we're actually trying to achieve. Um, especially when you have a lot of companies that are trying to move into this triple bottom line type mm. of business, you know, um, because in my mind, you know, profit will always, you know, undermine. The other two pillars of, like, you know, looking after the environment and looking after our people. Um, and we have to be the ones to change that. And it's sort of that idea again, it's like, well, if we do focus on all three, we are actually going to, in the long run, have a better sort of understanding and we can grow better. Not that we're here to talk about our corporate business.
0: <laughs> no, but I think actually, you know, the premise is, is audacity. And I find it really audacious of how how you continue to push forward to be successful in business and you bring all aspects of essentially your activism but really it's just for equity and equality that should be there as basic human rights really Um, and you are applying that in the business world which in many ways if we don't have it there it's going to be very hard to make it trickle down into other areas of of being and living um so i think I think it's all incredibly relevant, and these um sort of obstacles that many groups of people face in business is an issue. it's a serious issue, one that you know you're you're working towards combating, which kind of leads me in to ask you about the further studies you've done, so you talked about doing your bachelor in business, and I know personally that you've continued learning so tell us a little bit about your further studies and also just shout out to you that you have been juggling studying with full-time work I'm literally in awe
1: yeah I mean it hasn't been without its challenges and I just want to
0: (laughs) in this way I need to like I'm I'm kind of experiencing that now like I started the podcast in when I was furloughed and now I'm working full-time and it's like okay we've got two jobs <laughs> <we Yeah>.
1: go. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've got to give a little bit of a shout out to the UK lockdown for um, you know, allowing me the space to like it was also just this kind of idea of like, well, I can't go outside. So like I literally yeah. was, I was saying just the other day like how bizarre it was. And it feels like it was such a long time ago when the government told me I could only go out for one hour a day. Mm. Um oh, like my mind is actually
0: black mirror shit, like <laughs> apocalyptic. Like,
1: I know, like, it's crazy. Um, So at the moment, yes, I work full time. And I am currently studying part time doing some postgraduate study. Um, This has all kind of come from the rough period, and my desire to sort of be more in that advocacy field. Um, And so, I am doing postgraduate study in international development. So that's kind of, you know, looking at how do we do development in the world, essentially in what is considered, you know, the global south or as it is more sort of colloquially known, people often call it the third world. Personally, I don't like the use of that language. I think it creates a very big sense of othering, Um, like Mm. you're over there and you're these people that are like super poor and, you know, and we have to be the ones that are like giving you aid. I don't like that language. Um, So I sort of sort of use the terms on like that are more geographical looking at Global South and, you know, the Western world and things like that. So. Um, it's been an interesting ride so far. Um, I'm currently Mm -hmm. studying distance from my university in, uh, New Zealand, Massey. Um, and you know what, I sort of just thought I'm going to give it a go because if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I also started to get this idea. It's like this feeling in my gut, um, that where I'm sitting in corporate business is just not where I want to be not where I want to see myself in five years 10 years it's just I don't see that future for myself working in commercial business Mm. um no doubt I have learned valuable skills um but it's come down to that sort of I don't know I can just feel it in my gut and I like to call my gut my God, you know, like, because it is like, God is in the guts. God is in the gut. Yeah. And it's that intuition telling me, you know, you need to keep going, moving forward. And like, it's been the scariest ride. I honestly, like when I got accepted into this postgraduate program, I honestly was like, I don't want to do it. Mm. And I almost didn't do it. I almost was like, no, I can't do it. And, you know, someone said to me, why? And I was like, well, well it'll be hard (laughs) you know (laughs) like what about my time management what about the money that it costs and then all of these things just kind of started aligning for me in terms of doing it and you know I've just done my first semester and you know I've had the highest grade average that I've ever had um Mm. and you know for me I could ignore that um but I was like no I'm gonna I'm going to follow this and see where it goes. So I'm about to go to my second semester, but I am also looking to transfer to a university here in the UK. So I've been writing a lot of personal statements at the moment, <laughs> trying to sell myself. Yes. Um, and, you know, but what I got out of this semester was a very clear vision of where I want to go in the future and what I want to study to I had this realization when I was digging for some research to, for the rough period. I'm like, there's hardly any research in this area. Like, why, Mm. why do we not have, why is no one talking about this? Why are these Mm. not, lies is not in, you know, our sustainable development goals. Why are we not looking at the fact that if, you know, women and girls aren't going to school, that's not gender equal, you know, like they're, they're, missing, they're yeah. leaving school, they're missing X amount of time, which means already their education is disproportionate to, you know, their male counterparts. Um, a few weeks ago, I read a study that women in India are getting hysterectomies in order to stop menstruating, to wow. go and work in sugarcane fields. Um oh. Yeah, there's a very interesting uh, little short video, which I can send to you if you want to put like yeah, the link to in, link. Um, this podcast. Because for me, that really shook me in a sense of like the fact that we can't see menstruation for what it is. And, you know, women are losing their body autonomy and body integrity to you know, when they're having husbands push them into getting surgeries and further having surgeons tell them to, yeah, you should do this. You know, mm. these women are in their 20s. I'm not talking about women who are like, you know, they've had their children or two and then now it's like, well, they're still in their 20s and they're getting these surgeries done. These are irreversible surgeries
0: yeah.
1: um, just to go to work. And, again, it's that deep, deep inequality that's there, you know, um. Because I'm pretty sure if we told men that they had to go and get a vasectomy before they could go to work um, or so that they can continue working without having the pressures of, you know, children, well, I'm pretty sure that would be laughed out of the house, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. wouldn't, we wouldn't see that. Um, and so this kind of brought me to this idea of like, I kind of now have a goal that I would really like to go into postgraduate study Um, in doctoral studies to look at you know the implications of what we're doing so fingers crossed for me um everyone send amber
0: positive vibes to get her her (laughs) next degree
1: (laughs) um and the reason why you know that i am thinking about changing my university is just because some of the degrees that are offered here in the uk are a lot more specialized um And I think that can give me the better understanding of looking at this as a whole. Mm. Um, So we'll see what happens. And, you know, if it's, if the universe wants me there it will, it will happen right so we'll see yep. we'll see what happens
0: put the action in but with no expectations we'll just see what's next
1: totally exactly and I feel very ready to take the step um yeah and I feel that for you thank you and yeah I'm I- looking at doing it across Europe so I'm just like whoever lets me in first win
0: <laughs> 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 I love that um I have to also say that you like for the way that I view your activism, it's not uh, something you do sporadically. It's not something you just do um, on Instagram. You know, you really live and breathe your activism and the way that you maintain your integrity and apply it to all areas of your life you bring it into the workplace, even if it's going to make your bosses or your management team uncomfortable, you really push for what you believe in. And I think it's really important in movements such as this race revolution that we're in the midst of, um, that we have people willing to make others uncomfortable and to keep pushing um, with action. And it just, it kind of, to me, drew a parallel to you know, I know you and I have talked a lot about our spirituality, but it drew a parallel to how we try and apply all of our spiritual tools and mechanisms that we use to, to cope with life to all areas of our life. So I just wondered if there is a synergy for you that you pull on or lean on in terms of your faith and your activism.
1: Yeah. And for me, this has been a really big thing lately, Um, trying to understand the intersection even of like what Mm. is spirituality and what is activism Um, because sometimes they can feel like two very contrasting things. Like they just – they can feel very separate from one another Um, and I never want to be that activist who puts people down for trying, saying that they're not trying hard enough. Um, I never want to be that activist who has become – just so ignorant to the change that's already starting to take place, focusing on the end goal. I think, you know, that is a very big rewarding end goal, but there is a lot of processes that are happening in between. And the in between is where I don't like to be, because I think we should not, I'm like, we should be at the end. This has happened yeah. now, we should be here. But, yeah. but the thing is, this is a very large problem, and it's going to take a lot of people continuing this work so for me I've had to look at like what is the spiritual aspect behind this and you know what I learn is patience love and tolerance right and so that remains for me to be patient in the fact that it's not going to happen overnight you know it's going to take time Mm -hmm. Um, and if I put all of my energy into doing something on this one given week or this one given day, I'm going to be, I can't sustain that for a lifetime, you know, or it's like I can't sustain that for the months and years to come. Um, So I have to understand my own physical, emotional, and mental um, barometer in that sense and like continue to check in with myself and just be patient with the process Um, and the process can actually be an amazing journey um, because I've come this sort of path where like I was walking into a, I was walking to the park one day and ran into a friend and we just started having a dialogue around like, okay, you've got a space, I've got, you know, some skills and I'm um, connected to the community. So like, how can we use those to bring people together? And now we're working on a project, right? And these are all these tiny steps that just happen in between, which is kind of like this amazing process. Um, you know, I have to have tolerance for people. Um, one thing that happened recently is just, obviously a lot of this has come to the fore in my the organisation that I work for. And it's just having to be like, tolerant while people are learning Um, Mm. because what I have to also understand is that people are willing to learn right now whereas before they weren't before they were just so in the dark the spotlight is here and people are willing to stand up but you know things take time and the fact that we are taking steps to actually say no this is important to us is massive yeah. Um it's the same way that I look at my friends who you know, I had someone who the other day told me that they were doing some work around racism and looking at like white fragility and I was like, oh, that's amazing you know instead of turning around and being like, why are you not why weren't you doing this five weeks ago, why weren't you doing this then? it's like the fact is you're here and you're doing it now um and that's you know, I do think that these small actions matter, you know, and part of, this journey has had to, I've had to bring a lot of love into it and detach a lot of ego from it. Um, because that ego will have me screaming down the house. It will have me disconnecting from people. If I don't think that they're doing the work, you know, Mm. it's like, I have to, I have to take myself out of this and just go for like, what is my purpose within this? um, And that is to be there, like, yes, it can be exhausting being the educator, um, but I also have that choice of how and when I want to activate that. Um, Mm. And so what I've had to realise recently is that, like, okay, I'm physically, emotionally, mentally exhausted and it's okay for me to take some time away from the activist space because – some of the work that I'm doing is long-term work Um, and it doesn't mean that just because I'm not posting things on Instagram or like you know waving my finger or like standing up and saying something doesn't mean I'm not doing activism it just Mm. means that I am like just looking after myself to be able to continue the work Um, and I've been reading a lot about what it means to have activist burnout and you know it's like we have to we have to be able to look after ourselves because I am no good to anyone if I am exhausted you know and I think it's very important to to remember that and I think that's where that spirituality comes in you know because the spiritual aspects just teach me how to slow down and and just you know follow my gut and you know not go into the fear mode, like fear if I stop, the world's going to fall down because it's not true. I may be paused for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, but there are other people who are out there going for it, you know. Um, But I just, on my own personal level, it's been very important for me to understand how to slow down and how to continue to do the work amongst the chaos and not get too carried away if that makes sense and this is just my own personal journey other people may feel completely differently and that's absolutely fine that's their journey but for me for someone who is you know on a spiritual path
0: I have to know what my limits are a hundred percent and that self protection from that exhaustion is so important and also admirable that you're able to implement that and I think something that I've learned through I guess this greater awakening that's happened many in many ways and thanks to the pandemic I feel like because people have been at home and had an enforced slower pace of life it's given them the opportunity to do some reading and do some acknowledging and learning about um the experience of others essentially but I've also had some mm, some like budding resentments come up of like why has it taken you till now like this has been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years why are you suddenly just buying Rennie Edo-Lodge's book and think that that's your your you're done with your activism there just by like buying that one book um but what I've learned is that if we break down the word activism it's being active right and there is many many different ways in which people can take the action and be active so before I might have been quite judgmental if their activism didn't look the same as mine Mm -hmm. um and I've learned over this period that as you said there are different uh different directions that that can take and also different visibility factors like shoving it down people's throat and being really uh i don't know uh yeah like outward and visual with your activism is one way it is one way and it's definitely got its merit and its power but um just because someone's not not posting on Instagram all the time although I will say you and I do post quite a lot about it <laughs> yeah. but um even if we have a day off it doesn't mean we're having a day off in The journey in the work in the in the movement um so yeah I just I've I've personally been learning how to separate myself from judgment and resentment which is is not going to serve me it's not going to serve the movement it's not going to serve the people that it's uh directed towards in any way shape or form it's a redundant use of energy and um you know space in my brain and my heart um and that that space and that energy is will be much better used in more loving directions um so it is very interesting how we can use our spirituality and you know really at the crux of it for me my understanding is like for me very simplistically god is love so my pursuit with my faith is a pursuit of love and what is activism if it's not the pursuit of love it's it's Wanting equality and equity for different groups of people is essentially a loving act, isn't it? So there's there's so many synergies that it would seem um, futile or, uh, you know, a betrayal of the movement to separate them, I think. Totally. And I think like we also
1: forget that we could easily not be these people. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like we could actually just be in amongst the crowd of people who are... Uh, not doing any work and you know but we're not and that I think has to have some acknowledgement that it's like we are here and we are showing up and that in itself is massive um you know I I often think that when I post stuff on Instagram it's falling on deaf ears you know I think Mm. that people are not listening and they're probably like oh again seriously you know um and but I just kind of, you know, I don't do it all the time, but I do write the long posts and I mm-hmm, do continue mm-hmm. to do the stories. Um, and then I have people turn around and say, like, they'll send me a private message and be like, thank you so much for sharing this. It's so invaluable. And I was like, yeah.
0: well,
1: <laughs> you know, like, because I have this idea that no one's listening, um, yeah. but people are listening. And it just is, you know, I had a number of people reach out to me when BLM, you know, really took momentum, you um, at the start of June and they were like, how can I help? How can I help? And I just, you know, we can all help in different ways. And I kind of, for some people I gave them like, you know, I'm like, well, this is your industry. Why not try and jump into something here in this industry? You know, Mm -hmm. like you have a platform here work it you know um and for others it's kind of like all right it's just about the acknowledgement it's about looking at like what does your daily practice look like you know where are you shopping who are you shopping from you know um you where are you eating from what you know what what businesses are you choosing to support you know what are you reading um and that's why like some of the people that have come to me recently saying that they're doing the work I'm like a little bit blown away like I just sort of (laughs) never thought that you would be a person who is uh doing the work but you're doing it (laughs) and I think that's amazing you know and that's where it's like you just have to let people will find their journey with this stuff um And yeah, like you said, it's like the more time that I spend focusing on the work that other people are not doing, um, I forget about the people who are doing work and, you know, I'm burning up energy, like looking at the wrong thing,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's interesting what you said about Instagram. I've been posting a lot too and uh, I've had mixed response. I've had lots of, lots of people reach out and say thank you because they've learned things which I find interesting that I would be a source of information when I'm a white person given there's so many resources out there by black people but you know whatever I'll take it um and you know people just saying well done not that I'm seeking a pat on the back but that's some of the feedback I've had and then on the flip side I've had um someone say to a friend like does Hannah ever take drugs? And they were like, actually, no, she doesn't. And they were like, damn it, because I was going to say that if she takes drugs, then um, she's fueling the the racist sort of system and which would undo, undo everything that she's been saying. It would make her a hypocrite. And I was like, why are you looking to try and trip me up? <laughs> like, Why are you trying to seek out a way to undo my point of view, my perspective and my role in my personal activism like why would yeah I mean gosh that's just to me really like again a waste of energy and then other people you know every time I post stuff I lose a few followers and I don't have that many so I'm I'm not talking like I'm losing hundreds but in terms of like percentage it's astonishing that um people find conversation around race so offensive
1: (laughs) yeah and you know what it always amazes me at people's propensity to look at the wrong thing
0: and Mm. try and
1: pull out your character flaws um because yeah it's like you're just like what are you doing (laughs) you know like um
0: and that like if I was if I was taking drugs and feeling that that dynamic of racism why would you not reach out and be like hey did you know this like here's some information around this like because I know that you're really invested and passionate about seeking equality so I just wanted to check that you were aware you know why not bring people along I I learned the phrase calling in rather than calling out and I think that's so important
1: so important and I think um so important for what is happening right now like I was very um I was very amazed and blown away at the amount of people that actually reached out to me throughout, you know, the whole, when the movement again was like really gaining its momentum and people were checking in and, you know, um, then I was also very amazed at the people who didn't do that, you know? Um, And I thought that was very interesting um, in that respect. And I think, it's coming into, yeah, that, that's so that idea of like calling in, it's like, you know, it's like, you want to be able to be supportive and be an ally. And if someone is, in, if they were technically a little bit off the path, hypothetically, if you were using mm-hmm. drugs, it's like, do you not want to help that person? Like, do you not want to guide that person um, instead of making
0: a situation more like worse you know like, yeah <laughs> just like this yeah. cancel culture I mean even like if you look at the like environmental issues right like I choose to have a plant-based diet purely for the environment um and I mean and animal rights but like sometimes I have normal chocolate and does that undo all of the effort that i make in other areas like and if I buy I'm trying so hard not to do this but if I buy one thing from Zara does that undo all of the endeavors that I've made elsewhere no it's like it's part of the journey and every bit counts yes we could all be doing more all the time and I'm constantly challenging myself in all areas of my activism to do more do more do more push harder push harder but I don't think these these slip-ups or these um maybe places of ignorance these these areas that we don't we aren't informed on negates all the work done elsewhere
1: yeah and I also like we need to this is again where that spirituality comes in and where we're looking at those like using spirituality to help build ourselves up um is that we're not perfect we're never going to be perfect so Mm. if maybe I do buy something from Zara and I've made a calculated choice about whether or not I think that particular product is going to have longevity. Sure. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I do the same thing. It's like I hate buying leather, but then I'm also like, well, what's plastic going to do? Like, yet. you know, if I buy the leather <laughs> Birkenstocks, like will they be better than the plastic? You know what I mean? It's like it's like yeah. I have to I'm I'm constantly making very calculated choices, but at the same time, that can also be very exhausting. Yeah. Um having to think about every aspect and like I am going to say it, there are going to be times where we fuck up. And I Mm. think that's okay. And acknowledging the fuck up and then moving away from that behavior is where we grow. Because if I don't fuck up from time to time, how will I change? You know, Mm. and that is really important. It's to like having the humility to be like, whoops, maybe I did that thing wrong. Or maybe I did that thing not perfectly or what have you. But At the end of the day, it's like, if I don't, if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not growing and I'm not learning. I even just think about, you know, the first essay that I wrote after, you know, how many years away from study and I submitted it and the guy came back and gave me this, like, it was a good grade, but I was like, oh, and he gave me so much feedback and I was like, oh, that's annoying. Why is he telling me I'm not good? And then I was Mm. like, but what if I take that feedback on board? Mm. and I did and my grades changed exponentially you know um wow. but I had to have that learning experience. such a great
0: metaphor for life
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah like sometimes being just,
0: defensive does not work
1: <laughs> right um and so like taking that feedback on board and then it's like how can I do that but maybe if this had been four five years ago I
0: would have been like fuck that guy
1: Mm, I know better than
0: him. I have that even with like, I don't know, my mom telling me a better way to do XYZ in the kitchen, and I, my previous reaction would be like, "Thank you, I know how to do it. I get by just fine." And now I'm like, "Oh, interesting. You've been doing it for thirty years longer than me." (laughs) Like, yes, mom, show me. (laughs) It's like such an area of growth, personal growth for me.
1: And you know what? I think at the end of the day no one likes to be told that they're wrong and no one likes to feel special and different. Um, Or maybe we do like to feel special and different, (laughs) depends on how we look at it. Um, But no one wants to be told that they're wrong or that they're doing something wrong. But just because we get told that doesn't mean that that's necessarily a really bad thing. It's like, Mm. it just means you're just a little bit off the trajectory. And if we can say things in a kind and loving way, to say like, look, I just think you're a little bit off with the trajectory, um, here's my experience or here's my suggestion. Like if we can take these on board, like learning and growth happens. And I think I've only got to where I've come to in my life, it's through acknowledging that I don't have the answers.
0: Mm.
1: And sometimes I have to do, most of the time actually, I have to try and do things differently from how I did them before (laughs) because my old ways of working didn't work for me um, in a lot of areas and you know I have to acknowledge that you know I think if I think about like even the contrast of doing my postgraduate study versus my undergraduate I partied so much and then I got mad that my grades were so like not bad but they're not where I would want them to be and today it's like I get to show up and do the work actually do the work and that's reflected back to me and I'm like oh me you know and I get excited about it
0: oh I hear you I when I was um in sixth form doing a levels here which is like the last years of the last year of high school I did economics and I was drinking so much partying so hard like and I had that thing of I wasn't that good at it naturally and instead of applying myself and risking maybe not getting an a but trying my best i just didn't try at all and i got a d um which is the lowest grade i've ever got in my life and then i went to uni uh which would have been like 18 months later and in my first year we had to do an economics module (laughs) and it was the same content essentially because it's kind of like foundation in degree in the degree um so it was like the same kind of uh syllabus as my a level and I got a first completely just a different just going in there with a different mindset that was it totally that was the only difference I'm the same person same information um yeah that was a really a really great learning experience okay we went so far off track there but I think it was all really really valuable and I was doing really well at keeping us to an hour but it's gone so I'm um, <laughs> fine. Fine. gonna bring it <laughs> I'm back <having>
1: fun.
0: <laughs> good thank you Um I wanted to talk about representation and visibility and because I know you personally I know your well, I'm aware of your journey. Um, I don't know it because I haven't lived it, but I'm aware of your journey in terms of growing up in Christchurch, which was is a very white space. And by your own admi- admission, you didn't see anyone really that looked like you as you grew up. And then moving to Sydney, I know that it's a little bit more diverse, although it is still incredibly white. Although I will say that you and I really sought out spaces that were predominantly black wherever we could Although they were also quite disheartening because, well, when I was talking to people at these environment in these environments, I learned that people had flown in from different states, cities all over Australia. And I'm like, fuck, there's that few black spaces that we're traveling interstate just to seek them out, which was, yeah, depressing. Um, but now you're in London, which I love this city. It's very problematic, very flawed, but for all its sins, it is incredibly, beautifully multicultural and I assume you have a lot more visibility of other women with a uh, similar ethnic makeup to you that look like you. Um, but I wanted to ask if you would mind sharing with us kind of what that journey has been like and what effect it has had in you in those different uh, environments and stages throughout your life.
1: Yeah, sure. I think um, this notion of like being a biracial woman, woman um, and having what I can say is three very significant, actually, I might even say four significant experiences around race has been, it's been a pivotal part of my journey. It's been a very pivotal mm. part of understanding who I am. Um, and I would probably say that in the last six months has been a very big um undoing of a lot of old thinking and a lot of old processes um, around what it means to be a biracial woman. Um, So, you know, if I look back to growing up in Christchurch, you know, my sister and I grew up in an all-white family. Um, So I'm mixed-race African-American and white New Zealand um, on my mum's side. Um, And me and my sister grew up as the only two um, coloured members of our family, um, which, you know, when you're young, you don't realize, you know, it wasn't until I got to primary school that I realized that I was different, you know, like all different colored, I should say. I was actually perfectly normal. Um,
0: <laughs> what, is know, normal what, anyway? what is
1: normal anyway? normal, right? Like it's nothing that should, word should just be erased. Like I'm just a person among people.
0: Right? Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: um, and, you know, I got bullied. I was bullied. I was bullied for having a hair that was a different texture. And like, there had, mm. I just remember these two kids that used to sing at me this song. And I just remember being so distraught, not wanting to go to school. And, you know, when my mum confronted it, these children's parents just had, they just didn't see any, you know, they just thought it was, oh, that they're just kids. It's like, well, actually, no, they're kids being racist. That's what they are.
0: Yeah. Um, and and kids, where do they learn that?
1: And where are they learning it? And why, are you not, why are you not, you not? making them why are you not telling them that what they're saying is wrong right um so you know and this this sort of behavior like carried on throughout you know my teens and my adolescence you know to I was up until you know probably my 20s not 20s maybe like late teens was still bullied by the people that I would call friends um, who would call me out for being black, you know, Mm. Um, they gave me nicknames. They, you know, and it's like, this is what you kind of grow up with, like wanting to iron your hair perfectly straight so that you fit in. You know, I remember having absolute, distorted thinking wanting to go and get sunbeds with my girlfriends because that's what everyone was doing and having brown skin I felt outside of that experience um and are sunbeds legal in New Zealand yeah, they were then. They might be. They're I think illegal only... in Oz. Oh, yeah, Australia. They've got underground solariums.
0: I know, <laughs> literally the black market of some place.
1: <laughs> I was shocked when I came here and still saw solariums. I was like, oh my God. And then I realised this is England. Um,
0: this is England. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, but, you know, I was I was bullied um, for a long time. And the sort of dissonance that that creates when one's mind is amazing it's 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 just it's unbelievable um I never wanted to be who I truly was and I didn't understand who I truly was because I also didn't have a black family there to really guide me you know Mm. uh, the population of African New Zealanders is 0.3 percent 15,000 in total and most of them are concentrated in Auckland um so Christchurch if anyone has been there Christchurch New Zealand is you know Aside from our Maori and Pacifica populations, is a very white city. Yeah. Um so you know, then I moved to Australia because well, it was for different reasons, but I wanted a new experience. Um, plus we had just had an earthquake in my city and I thought that was unacceptable to live in. <laughs> so I moved. Um <laughs> I
0: play golf. I play. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Um, and when I came to Australia, it probably took a few years when I started to become conscious of the fact that the racism in Australia was exceptionally bad, um, mm. you know, and it probably wasn't until I had stopped drinking and disconnected myself from my party lifestyle where I had started to wake up. Up to what was happening, yeah. um, I started having a slow awakening around like what it meant to be Indigenous in Australia when I had just moved there, and I remember feeling very passionately about learning about Indigenous rights and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I mean, like Australia was where I found it was that really everyday racism. You know, I started mm. a job and I got a woman follow me out to the back room showing me where the security cameras were you know um i found in australia the Mm. level of like fetishization and let me touch your hair not even i'm not even gonna say let me touch your hair it's just hand in here (laughs) situations were a lot higher um you know and again it was you get that like, Oh, blah, 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 loves black girls, you know? And it's just, it, all of that stuff was a lot more present. Um, and I found that really distressing in a way. So I guess by the time that I started to sort of move into this idea of like spirituality and start to open up my mind, I started to, it was like seeing things for the first time. And I was like, what, where the fuck am I living? <laughs> like, yeah. you know? and I just had this moment, you know, um, trying to find African hairdressers, try like, you know, you just realize how minimal that culture or these, our cultures and our ethnicities are represented in Australia. Um, Yet we, you know, you drive out of Sydney airport and you've got billboards for uh, new apartments aimed solely at Chinese consumers, you know, it's like, so, you know, Australia wants to cater for one party, but then just doesn't cater for the other party. And you see this, this is on a global scale, right. You know, and it was hard being, in amongst that Um, Mm. you know I I shared recently like just trying to find I couldn't even find a black therapist Um, you know and everything just feels so disproportionate you know I think I found the most black people I've ever found one day shooting on a commercial um, because we were filming a New York nightclub scene, ha-ha, like, wow, you've got to try and find all <laughs> of the bloody, like that's just says enough in itself, doesn't it? It's just like how do we find all these yeah. black people? Um, that, again, shows like the representation that the proportions are so small mm. um, and it's hard to find community within that. And I think what I started to realise was that I did need Community because I still felt like such. No matter how many groups I nestled myself into, I still felt like an outsider, um, and that's actually what sort of propelled me to move to London. Because although I am African American, I didn't feel that I needed to be in America at that time. But I did feel that I needed to be in amongst more Black people, yeah. um, and london was the only other sort of place where i had been where i had seen such a high proportion of um black people mixed race people people of color like you know and it was so multicultural and i can tell you that yes this city this country has a lot of flaws but it has been amazing being here and not being looked at all the time or like pointed at or people making comments being like oh you know, like because I look different because here I am a one in many, you know, whereas in Australia I was one in few and that was, you know, people felt more, um, okay to make comments about that, you know, um, even down to like, you know, I always have people say shit like to me. Like I remember the sisters came to me like in high school, oh, you're black. You must be good at basketball. Like, oh. oh, I'm so uncoordinated, <laughs> like, give me- <laughs> so give me a paintbrush, um, you know, and I'll, I'll make you a paint <clears throat> thing, but give me a basketball and, like, is going in the trash, nah. you know. <laughs> like, it has no use in my hands, you know. Nah. Um, or you, you must be really good at running. I'm like, um, I've got an e cup. Have you tried running with those? <laughs> you know, like it's just. And people are so okay to make these ex- assumptions, right? And we celebrate Black people in sport, especially in things like basketball. Yet we don't celebrate them in real life. And I think this mm-hmm. is like that is one of the biggest things that makes me just. So, so angry. It's like, because we will pick and choose when we want to celebrate you. And again, it comes down to the same idea with women's bodies as well. Like, yeah. we, we, women are now working to get booty and getting breast implants and wanting this specific shape, um which are generally geared more towards body Americans. shapes of
0: ethnic groups, oh, you know? Yeah, and that, yeah, of course.
1: Yet, like, you still shame black women for looking the way that they look.
0: I mean, so literally. it's like,
1: why are you paying for it in f- money, in work, in whatever? Yeah. Yet, you're going to turn around and tell me that I am less than perfect being the way that I am, you know? And that, again, is just something that absolutely infuriates me. It's like, you want to take black culture, you want to take the things that we have yet you refuse to acknowledge us as equals and you refuse to stand up and defend us when we need to be you know not defend but like you don't want to get in the movement not you don't want to help with, you don't wanna, yeah. you want to you you don't want to undo your own mindset but you do want to pay to look as a similar aesthetic to what a black yeah. woman would look like yeah. um you know, and I think that's astonishing. It, it just, it does, it blows my mind in that respect. It's like,
0: yeah, it always just- It's 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 a, a robbery of culture. It's taking, but there's no exchange. Yeah. There's no, um, I mean, in terms of the aesthetics, I think that's problematic on another level. But when you look at like rap culture or certain types of dancing and stuff, there can be a cultural exchange, but when there's no accreditation to the source, it's just a taking- that's where it was a real issue actually in terms of the body shape and i mean even like lip filler is a huge thing these days and yet black women are considered or told that they're less than for having beautiful full lips um and you know i don't know if you watch it but jada pinkett smith's um platform called the red table on facebook and she has her mom and her daughter and they discuss all these uh plethora of different issues and her mom, who's obviously a different generation, she's, I would say, a, a lot more outwardly angry about um, racial injustice, and the the different uh, views throughout the different generations is actually a really interesting dynamic. But her mom, Adrian, talks talked about in one episode, um, the this culture, this uh, behavior amongst white women of replicating the black aesthetic. While still not making space or appreciating actual Black women's aesthetic beauty looks,
1: totally. And then you have like companies who like are clearly taking from the Black aesthetic but using white models, and it's like okay, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but I mean, yeah. To go back to our original topic, um, because I could talk about this forever. Um, yeah. you know I. I had my family tell me that they, they they just thought I was really weird when I told them that part of the reason I wanted to move to the UK was to have a black experience and, you know, without casting a very weird light on her, my sister then tried to tell me that I wasn't worthy or really deserving of having that black experience because I was raised in a white family and I can't identify myself as black and I just said to her like I may have grown up in a white family and I may have some thinking that is probably more geared towards a white society I can't help that most of the time there's a long deep entrenched like ideas from growing up but just because I may in some ways not have that traditional thinking of black culture all the time does not mean I do not present as a black person. It's like regardless of what's happening on the inside, on the outside, I am still subject to discrimination. I am still subject to fetishization. I am still going to be treated in an adverse way. I still have less chance of getting a job. Do you know what I mean? It's like what happens on the inside is almost irrelevant in some ways on how I present on the outside because of the way a person will view me from the minute that they see me. Um, I also
0: think it's very limiting to assume that there is a black way of thinking and a white way of thinking, because again, it's that um, really narrow view of what an entire race experiences. And, and just like, I don't know, I was um, doing a bit of unlearning myself through Dr. Abraham X. Kendi, who wrote a book called how to be anti-racist. And he says, like, there's no such thing as, I mean, maybe I'm going to say this wrong, but he kind of made the point of, like, there's no such thing as black culture or, like, how to behave in a black way because he just was explaining that then you have the issues of saying, like, oh, you seem more like a white person to a black person and you're denying their experience just because it's not, I guess, I guess it is a form of fetishization like, assuming all black people will fall into a certain... Role within a group or a work environment or even just in a society?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, I know, like, I know then I can say this that, like, I do have a very big disconnect from what would be my black heritage being African American. Mm -hmm. I do have that disconnect. I didn't grow up in the States, I grew up in New Zealand. You know, and so my perspectives are through a lens of growing up in New Zealand. Um, doesn't mean I don't like rap music, doesn't mean I don't like blues and jazz and r and b, like doesn't mean I don't enjoy, you know all kinds of other experiences that would come within what is a black culture or like what people would other people would perceive to be a black culture. But you know, what I think is the most important to look at is that, like, whether or not I'm identifying with a specific culture or not, uh, what my thinking is, the I, the end of the day, it's like I'm still subject to race, racial discrimination, and that's yeah. it, and that's all that all that matters really. It's like you, yeah. I'm still treated in an adverse way, whether my thinking is a certain way or not. Yeah. Um, and exactly like you know, it is it is pertinent to say that it's like just because I'm not. Loving like I mean when I went to America, my sister and my dad were just on the same wavelength, oh my god, they love sport, they love cars, they love this type of music, whatever and I'm like, Can we go to the museum? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like
0: <laughs> Love but it doesn't that.
1: mean that I'm any less black because I want to go to the museum. It just means that like when other people like what I felt at that time was that in that way I didn't fit in because I wasn't into those same things, which creates its own level of neuroses when you feel like mm. you don't fit in with your black family. You're like, oh fuck. <laughs> like where who am I? And that's what this journey has been about for me. It's like being okay to say that, like, yeah. I fucking love rap music and I love, you know, Afrobeats and I love, you know, all kinds of, I like, you know, I love Ethiopian food, like, and I love all these different aspects of what it means to be black. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm a real nerd at heart and I love reading and I love going to museums and, like, I do like looking at paintings that have been painted by a lot of white people, like, you know, and, but what I see in that is like, okay there's a lot of paintings in this gallery by white people so how do we work towards getting more representation you know like yeah. and how do we and that's where the advocacy comes back in. it's like seeing the gaps you know and being like well actually what can I do personally to start working on having that representation and, and I think if I hadn't had the journey that I've had I wouldn't see what I see and What I see, for example, at the moment, which I'm very focused on, is a really strong lack of services that support the well-being of black people. Um, You know, a lot of lack of black therapists, um, spiritual workers, like people that are taking from, you know, I wrote a big post about this on my Instagram, talking about how like there's a lot of, you know, yoga studios that only employ white people yet this is a practice Mm -hmm. that belongs to an entirely different culture and ethnicity of people like you know and we take profit from that um, as a society and you know I started then like I've had to go through my Instagram and like start unfollowing a lot of people to start supporting and following black spiritual healers and black yeah. yoga teachers and black people who have got the gospel you know like people that I want to hear from but people that I yeah. directly relate to and I feel like I'm in such a space to be able to do that now um, yeah. whereas before I still like my own dissonance would get in the way being like oh but you know and I'm, I'm so guilty of having that thinking and this is what I say is a product of growing up as a in a white society and not seeing that representation would be oh but that person's black can they be spiritual like what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like I'm guilty of having that own thinking and then I have to re- – it takes me a minute. I've got to recalibrate my thinking, you know, yeah. being like, who the fuck can – anyone can be spiritual if they choose to follow a spiritual path, you know, um, and then it drives me to look at why wider systemic issues. It's like why have I never had a black therapist? Oh, it's not that black people are less qualified. It's that black people aren't allowed – not allowed, but black people have a harder time getting into that in the first place. Mm you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but Ooh, I'm just so conscious yep. of the time. Amber, what is your Instagram handle so that we can all come and follow you, support you? Ooh. um. So
1: my Instagram handle is at Amber Sis, A-M-B-E-R-S-I-S-S. And yes, you will see a little character of Janie from The Simpsons.
0: <laughs> As
1: my, uh, okay, my girl
0: <laughs> loves a cartoon. I just gonna say I've never known anyone love cartoons like you. Um I just wanna say thank you for all the really important points that you raised, especially in that in that last question, um, and for sharing your own personal experience. And I'm gonna now just quickly wrap up with my quick fire questions. And because we've spoken for so bloody long about really important things, um, I'm going to limit you to one word to one sentence answers. Okay? Okay, here we go. Ready? Yeah. What's the first thing you do when you get up? Pray. Love it. What action feels most like prayer to you? Running. Mm. (laughs) What's the most audacious thing you've ever done? Live. Oh, wow that's powerful (laughs) what commitment are you going to make to yourself for this coming week breathe Mm. when was the last time you felt fearful and how did you handle it you can have more than one word for this one this morning when I thought I was going
1: to be late to my brunch at Brixton
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was like how can I do a podcast and
1: get to Brixton on time
0: (laughs) you're so funny and how did you reconcile that fear for yourself
1: I stopped I paused and I realized what's more important you know or lateness is just a old pattern of thinking for me like just because I'm late doesn't mean I'm not showing up and it doesn't mean I'm any less you know perfect as I am you know it's just it's my own neuroses and I could either let that sit with me and destroy my whole morning and be grumpy on this podcast or I could just be like fuck it
0: (laughs) I can do both (laughs) thank you (laughs) okay last question of the show where is your happy place Oh, look, you've got
1: me, you got me stumped, had a lot of words oh. before and now I've got none. my um, happy place <laughs> is anywhere that I'm surrounded and, and just connected with, um, the people who have built me up and been on this journey, whether that is Paris, whether that is London, whether it is Sydney, whether it is at the beach, like whatever, um, happiness sits on the inside. Right. So it's like, if I am in a state of like flow and contentment with the people who I am connected
0: with, um, I can be happy wherever I go. Happiness is a choice. Well, that is the most positive ending I could ask for. Happiness is on the inside and happiness is a choice. So listeners, I'm going to leave you with that beautiful thought today and just big up to Amber for your really way over time time <laughs> and all of the insightful commentary that you brought to the table today so thank you my darling and we will link to your instagram so we can continue to support you and a number of other resources that we referenced in in the conversation today we'll put it all in the show notes
1: um thank you amazing and you know what thank you for having me and just in general hosting this platform because i think you know regardless of what we say having that visibility means so much to so many people you know Mm -hmm. so keep going keep doing the work and I can't wait to hear what comes out next
0: there's some goodies I can tell you that for free (laughs) (laughs) okay off you go to Brixton enjoy your brunch we love you we support you and thank you
1: thank you my love talk to you soon